This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Last week, the Obama administration's pay czar, Kenneth Feinberg, announced that the government will impose pay caps on compensation for the 25 highest-paid executives at seven companies that received exceptional assistance through the Troubled Asset Relief Program, including American International Group, Bank of America, Citigroup, Chrysler, Chrysler Financial, General Motors, and GMAC. Under the new regulations, salaries will be reduced by an average of 90%, and total compensation, including bonuses and stock options, will be lowered by 50%. Knowledge at Wharton spoke with Wharton accounting professor Wayne R. Gay and then with finance professor Alex Edmonds about what these changes could mean for Wall Street, company shareholders, and taxpayers. In the overall context of reforming financial regulations after the financial crisis, how important is the executive pay issue? Well, I mean... I think what we need to think about is is uh, how executive pay sort of factored into or is sort of related to the financial crisis issues that have come up. And I think what we want to do is, for the most part, is keep our eyes on the ball. And, and I think that the ball here is uh, with respect to uh, the risk issues. And so if we think about I think we're going to focus on regulatory sort of efforts with respect to pay. If we think about where the regulators maybe should be focusing their efforts, uh, much of the effort that we've heard about in the last week or so has been related to the the level of pay uh, that executives might be taking in. And I, I don't think that that factored much at all into the financial crisis that, that we, we've run into uh, these banks, large financial institutions, didn't run into trouble because they were overpaying their executives. The amount of compensation these individuals were taking home is not what caused this problem. The problem was rather that uh, these institutions had a lot of similar risk structures uh, that all got hit with some of the same underlying fundamentals in the economy that caused them all to experience substantial losses all at a similar point in time. And so then the question is, you know, how does executive compensation sort of factor into the the risk-taking with respect to these financial institutions? Um, And and there I would say we want to focus on maybe two different angles. One is... You know, how does the how does the executive compensation affect uh, the risk taking for a single bank or a single financial institution? And then, how does the executive compensation uh, factor into the the coordinated risk or the 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 systemic risk that these financial institutions might all be taking at the same point in time? Uh, I think. It might be possible to do something about the first one uh, with respect to how does uh, executive compensation affect the the risk taking of a of an individual bank. It's not clear to me how you'd structure a, an executive compensation plan so that a, an executive of of Bank A would consider the risks that Bank B and Bank C and Bank D and Bank E are taking because those are all coordinated and correlated. And there, I think uh, the solution to that problem is probably outside of the executive compensation. Even if the executive uh, compensation package is term- tied to short-term um, gains, do uh, you think that uh, 
that 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 makes a difference in the in the equation, Wayne. Well, let's yeah. I think we want to step back and think about it. There has been a lot of rhetoric, I would say, with respect to these executives having a very short-term focus, and and some of the ways that the regulators have come upon to to maybe try to focus more on a longer term is to have short-term bonuses or short-term salaries paid in stock so that and and require the executives to hold the stock for two or three or four or five years before they can sell the stock and have these sort of longer-term uh, uh, performance objectives. I think we want to step back a little bit and recognize that for most of these top executives, the vast majority of their compensation already is tied to long-term stock price performance. So starting in the sort of early to mid-90s and up through recent years, the majority of a CEO's pay, uh, not only at a financial institution but at, at non-financial institutions just in corporate America in general, most of a CEO's pay comes from grants of stock and options. And those securities typically have a three or four or five-year vesting period and the executive needs to hold those securities for a substantial period of time. Mm-hmm. So the part that we're focusing on here uh, with respect to the salary that might be now paid in stock or bonuses that might be paid in stock, we want to recognize that's already a minority, a small component of the typical CEO's pay anyway. So if this typical CEO is already getting 60 or 70 or 80 percent of their pay in stock or options – and then we make it 85% or 88% instead of 80%, is that really going to make a big difference? And, and my feeling is, is probably not. Okay. Of the groups that have skin in this issue, Wayne, do you think that um, – uh, like I would like to take a look at how um, they are being treated in this in terms of uh, fairness and equity. Uh, I think you have the executives themselves. You have taxpayers uh, who have supported the uh, the uh, rescue of these companies, and you have uh, company shareholders, and I guess employees and other stakeholders in that in that uh, group. Um, are executives being given a fair shake in this in this process? Well, I mean, I certainly feel like. Uh you know, absent absent you know regulatory pressures or regulatory actions, the executives can look out for themselves. So I'm mm-hmm. not so much worried about the executives, except to the extent that regulators or someone else comes in and forces the issue. Um, so you know, the executives can look out for themselves, but if a regulator comes in and says you're only allowed to make half what you're currently making, well then then, you know, at that point, you may need to step back and say, you know, is the executive getting a, a fair shake here? And and we've heard a lot of discussions about, you know, the, the labor market for executives, and this has been all through the financial press, that if you if you constrain the pay in, in that, that these bank executives are receiving, they can go elsewhere and, and, and make money. They can go to hedge funds. They can go to private equity funds. They can go abroad. They can go to, you know, in, in private organizations. So we've heard all those arguments. But I think that I think the, the the focus there has been on the level of pay, which I don't think again has anything to do really with the financial crisis we're experiencing. If we now move to say the the shareholders, um, I think you know, shareholders in many ways can also look after themselves. At the same time, I think that there's a, a role for the regulators to to step in and coordinate efforts toward corporate governance. So. You could imagine a, a setting where you have 10,000 publicly traded firms in the U.S. and they all would like to make some 
basic changes or important changes in their corporate governance. Now, they can each try to make those changes by themselves, uh, or they can ask a regulator to step in and say and to coordinate that corporate governance effort on behalf of all the, the corporations. And so I think there's a, an efficiency argument there that comes from regulators stepping in and having this one body sort of make some changes. And I think some of the changes they've been talking about in terms of giving shareholders a bit more access to proxy materials or voting on directors so that when you do have directors that that should be removed, that it's, uh, that it's easier for shareholders to be able to do those things. Um, and, and even just recently in the last few days, there have been some new proposals on on ways to do that. So uh, I think that it is important for the regulators to look out for the shareholders, not so much because they can't look out for themselves in many cases, but because they can coordinate these these corporate governance shifts that, that most corporations might be looking for at various points in time. Okay. And the taxpayers? Well, the taxpayers, that's where I think, you know, the, 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 the regulators do need to step in and to, to look out for the taxpayers. And for the a lot of the the press we've seen in the last week or so has been surrounding uh, Mr. Feinberg's uh, efforts to regulate or to alter compensation at seven of the large institutions, financial and non-financial, that that took a particularly large amount of of support or uh, help from from the government from the taxpayers. So now in those firms, the taxpayers have a vested interest, even greater vested interest than they would normally have. They actually own part of the, of the organization. And so looking out for their interests is, uh, is, is important. And if, if, for example, the taxpayers had stock in the company, then the regulators would want to think about the taxpayers' interest similarly maybe to a stockholder. But if the taxpayers have debt in the company or preferred stock in the company, well, the interests of debt holders might be different than the interests of stockholders, and the regulators uh, would want to make sure that, uh, that, that, that those debt securities that the taxpayers hold um, are shored up, are safe, are going to be paid back. Uh, and I think some of else of what we're seeing here is that by sort of squeezing executive compensation a little bit at these organizations, it will make it they'll be they'll have a, uh, put greater effort into paying the taxpayers back and getting out from the thumb of of the regulator. And so, if these institutions don't want their executive pay regulated to as great an extent, one way to do that would be to pay back the the assistance they receive from the taxpayers and and uh, and and then have their executive compensation be similar to other organizations. Wayne, do you think that excessive risk-taking and executive compensation are closely tied? You know, the, the risk-taking incentives are kind of tricky. I mean, it's, it's you know, th- the, the reason why somebody has an, an incentive to take risk is uh, essentially when they're protected on the downside and they have sort of unlimited or substantial gains they can get from the upside – um, and stock doesn't really have that feature. So, you know, having an executive's uh, compensation tied to stock doesn't really provide a lot of risk-taking incentives. Uh, there aren't a lot of s- substantial risk-taking incentives in these compensation packages now, at least for the top executives. When you go down in the organization, I think some of the issues of compensation revolve around traders. Um, in in these banks and financial institutions, some of which had tremendous upside and fairly limited downside, and may have been taking some some risks that 
that they shouldn't have been taking possibly. Um, but there, it seems to me like if you ensure that you have a good, solid board of directors and that the board of directors um, are looking out for, or, or looking after the CEO and the top executive team and making sure that the incentive structures for the top executives are, are aligned, then the executives should be able to look out for the traders and for the other people in the organization. So it's really a chain of command you're thinking, you're worried about, is that the shareholders choose the directors to look after the shareholders' interests. The directors then select an executive management team to look out for the shareholders' interests. And then the executive management team looks after all the other employees and the other parts of the organization to look after the shareholders. And it seems to me that if we think that there's a problem with executive pay or the trader's pay or someone else's compensation, at the end of the day, the fault has to lie with the board of directors. And so if you think the board of directors is, is not a good board, um, then fix the, come up with a way to fix the board as opposed to fixing all of the bad actions that that board is taking. Uh, and I think we've seen a lot of effort over the last 10 years to have greater independence in the board of directors, the compensation committee of these firms. People sometimes forget this is made up completely of independent directors. The audit committee is made up of independent directors. Most boards have a vast majority of their directors being independent. We've made a tremendous amount of gain towards structuring the board of directors to be independent of the CEO and to look after the shareholders' interests. If we don't think we've gone far enough, maybe we think about going a little further with selecting the board. But once we have a board that's looking out for the shareholders, I think then it's dangerous to second guess what that board's doing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is going on now. But there has been a lot of uh, suggestion that, that shareholders and, and boards tend to have um, short memories and, and, and short time horizons into the future. So that if a, a company is uh, a financial institution is making uh, huge profits that um, are likely to uh, come are, are coming right ahead of a of a waterfall, then uh, they're not highly incentivized to um, change the board. Uh, at least the shareholders aren't. Um, well, I think that's a. F I mean, my view on that would be that's a. a f there's a fallacy there, and that mo again most top executives get the majority of their pay in the form of stock and, and options. Mm -hmm. If you looked at the the loss in wealth for the CEO of your, you know, just pick at random any f large financial institution or any financial institution in general over the last year and a half, and you look at how much these top executives lost because of this crisis, I mean, they lost billions and billions of dollars across the groups. And they certainly would have been much better off had this crisis not happened. So I think it's a fact, there, there is this perception out there that these top executives walked away with a tremendous amount of money and, and left the shareholders holding the bag. Well, they did walk away with some bonuses and some pay, but they were left holding the bag with the shareholders at that, at that point in time. And, you know, the shareholders as a group, I mean, all those shareholders that were holding the stock of those financial institutions, they suffered tremendously. So it's hard to see why those shareholders, if everyone knew that something was amiss, uh, why those shareholders that were holding the shares didn't take actions to make a change, why those directors didn't take – because most of those directors now have a big black mark on their reputations as well, mm -hmm. as do the CEOs. Uh, the incentives in my mind were, were very tightly aligned with 
maintaining the value of these institutions. I mean, nobody benefited from having this financial crisis. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but most people didn't benefit from this financial crisis. Um, and so I think it's it's uh, I think you want to. It's easy to look back in the mirror uh, and say that everybody should have saw this coming, but. I think at the end of the day, five years from now or three years from now, my guess is what we're going to find or come to realize is that everybody made a similar mistake um, and we've all paid a, a price for it. Okay, then. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Alex, in the overall context of reforming financial regulations after the financial crisis, how important is the executive pay issue? Well, Tony, I think it's very important politically. So a lot of people lost a lot of money in the financial crisis, and it's very natural to want some people to pay for it, and the natural people are the people who are in charge of the companies which uh, ended up going bust or losing a lot of money. And often as economists, we like to belittle the political reasons, but actually they're very important, given this is something which has affected a huge number of people. However, economically, I think the importance of executive pay is a bit less clear. So this depends on what you think caused the financial crisis in the first place. And there are three main schools of thought. So one of them is that we just had bad models. So even though we had the most sophisticated and smartest people in Wall Street, the models just uh, weren't up to date for the current uh, financial system. And this is similar to, say, somebody who gives up the game-winning home run in in a baseball game. The incentives are correct, but you just make mistakes from time to time. And if that's the case, then changing the the pay is not going to affect this because it wasn't bad incentives to begin with. The second um, school of thought is one which is known as the behavioural school, where people just made psychological mistakes because, as human beings, we interpret data in an incorrect manner. We tend to over-extrapolate from small trends and so forth. And again, much like, like the bad models idea, this is something which is not caused by incentives. So again, under that school, executive pay won't be so important. But indeed, the third school is that it was incentives that that were the major um, component of this, that because of certain pay systems, executives took too much risk, they took too short-term options. But again here, it's it's not so clear that the uh, changes which we have seen are tackling the component of executive pay, which was the problem. So what we have seen is limits to the level of pay. But there are many people who believe it's not so much the level of pay, but maybe the short-term nature of pay, which led to people taking these myopic actions. Or secondly, the asymmetric risk-reward profile, that if you do well, you get a high bonus, but if you don't do well, you get a a large severance package. So by looking at just the level of pay, this may actually miss the the, the major part of it, which is the the incentive structure. There was some component, though, that that in in the uh, proposals that came from the uh, compensation czar, that we would have a, a longer-term um, uh, view for how compensation should be structured. Are they not looking long-term enough? So this, is, this is one of the... Uh most important things that I think came out of the, the uh, new proposals. So what, in addition to the reduction in the pay levels, which got a lot of the press, what I was particularly pleased to see was Ken Feinberg's quote that he's requiring these officials to buy into stock that they must hold for a number of years before they can cash out. So I think this is what's getting more to the heart of the system. So whilst many people will focus on the level and people just getting paid too much in terms of raw numbers, it seems to be the incentive structures that, that matter more. And so this is, I think, what's going to have more bite even though what the media typically focuses on is the one million versus half a million or, or whatever the amount of salary is. 
To what extent do you think that some of the popular reaction to this has been preexisted the the financial crisis? There were lots of there was executive compensation has been an issue for a long time, and a lot of um, uh, you know, working people have questioned the very high level of these uh, of these uh, uh, packages between salaries and and stock buybacks, uh, or um, I'm sorry, uh, stock options. Do you think that that had any that has any role in the political component right now? Yes, I think it, it certainly does, Tony. It's it de- indeed true that a lot of this debate indeed predated the financial crisis. So there was a big academic debate and also debate among practitioners, uh, which had pre-existed at the start of this crisis. So what we saw was US pay in terms of just the levels going up sixfold since the 1980s. And this is way faster than the increase in the average worker's income. It's way faster than the increasing incomes overseas. And so the view is, is that executives are setting their own pay. So we like to think there's a board of directors acting on behalf of shareholders, which sets pay to maximise shareholder value. But the alternative view is the CEO has his or her buddies on the board, and that enables them to give pay schemes which are good for the the CEO, but not the shareholders. However, again, this because it's a debate, there are two sides to to the story. So there was a prominent view, mainly um, proposed by Xavier Gebex and Augustin Landier of, of NYU Stern, which argued that actually this is justified by competitive forces. So if you were to take, say, um, two baseball players, Babe Ruth and Derek Jeter, uh, Babe Ruth is extremely talented and Derek Jeter is extremely talented, but uh, De- Derek Jeter gets paid far more than Babe Ruth did, even though they're of the same level of talent. And this is just because the stakes in the baseball industry have got much stronger. So mm-hmm. what we have now is that if you're the best shortstop, you can just generate far more revenue for your team. And so now applying this to a corporate setting, what we now have is companies just being far bigger than they were 20 years ago. And therefore, if you have a CEO who's only slightly more talented than the next best guy, so he adds only 1% more to firm value, given that some firms are, say, $10 billion, 1% of that is $100 million, so it's worth paying top dollar to get the best person. Now, obviously, this is not a, a widely palatable view because people are willing to accept that Derek Jeter is talented. They can see him hitting home runs, but people think, well, executives are not really talented. They sit in their office, they play golf a few times, and this is a job anybody else can do. But if you look at some of the very good CEOs, they can create extremely good products which change the way people live their lives. So, Companies such as Google, who've made trans- transforming innovations, those are companies run by talented CEOs. Mm-hmm. It seems that in addition to executives, there are a couple of other, uh, there are some other groups with, with skin in the game. Um, uh, those would be the shareholders and, uh, the, uh, and the taxpayers who are now um, uh, part owners of some of these companies, uh, or the seven that are affected by these, these rules. Yeah. Are they all getting a, a, a fair deal? So I think I'll I'll, I'll lump the shareholders and the taxpayers together because, as you said, Tony, both of those can be considered investors in the banks. So again, here, it's it's not clear. So if you just to look at the effect of pay going down, clearly, if pay goes down, then this is a direct immediate benefit to shareholders and taxpayers, because a dollar that you're not paying to the CEO is a dollar that you can return to the government or to shareholders. But again, if if you want to look at the broader implications of, of changing pay, one of the concerns is that if you're reducing the amount of pay, you might not be recruiting the, the best managers to do the job, or maybe you're not not incentivizing them enough. And again, if you just to look at um, basic numbers, we get pretty outraged if a CEO gets overpaid by $10 million. $10 million is a huge amount to any normal person. 
But again, in the grand scheme of things, $10 million is only 0.1% of a $10 billion firm. Whereas by contrast, if by not giving the person the correct incentive structures, they are not adding 1% or 2% to firm value, this is several orders of magnitude higher. So one of the, the concerns that some shareholders and maybe some taxpayers may have is that what we're doing here is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. On the one hand, we've got a direct saving in the amount of salary, but what we're losing in terms of potentially better decisions may vastly outweigh this. Now, again, politically, it's tricky because um, when if you don't give the CEO the correct incentives and they don't invent a new product, this is something we can never see as outsiders. We can only see bad actions such as being overpaid and punish those, but we can never see the counterfactual of not taking good actions. And even though those may actually be much more important for firm value, because we never see them, they never get as much attention in this debate. Mm -hmm. In a paper you wrote this year with some of your colleagues, you suggested a system that escrows compensation for a set period of years stretching into the executive's retirement. The restrictions proposed by the government on these seven companies don't go nearly that far. Do you think longer time frames for measuring executive performance will ever gain traction? Sure. This was a paper I co-authored with uh, Xavier Gebex and Thomas Sadzik of NYU Stern and uh, Yuli Sanikov of Princeton University. And you're indeed right, one of the main hallmarks of this was long-run incentives so that CEOs would not take short-term actions. And indeed, what you've seen in, in terms of the, the regulations is it's focused more on the level of pay rather than the horizon. But there was that phrase I mentioned earlier about trying to increase the horizon of incentives. So I think some of this is indeed getting traction. But also, more importantly, this is something which it doesn't require any regulation for it to be implemented. So it may be that if we're correct and this is something sensible, then companies will adopt this voluntarily. And indeed, what we saw in the wake of the financial crisis is a number of investment banks reforming their compensation schemes. So UBS has this new compensation model where they're trying to link bonuses to long-term performance. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and some of the other investment banks followed suit with also trying to lengthen the horizon of incentives. So this is something where you don't require government intervention, if indeed there's a good pay package, then shareholders have the incentives to adopt it themselves. I see. What do you think of the argument by many proponents of the pay limits that executive compensation and excessive risk-taking are closely tied? I definitely agree that executive compensation and risk-taking are closely tied, because if indeed you have an asymmetric risk-reward structure, i.e. if you do well, then you get a huge bonus, but if you do badly, you get a, you get a nice severance package, then clearly this will encourage you to take risk. Also, if you're given short-term incentives where you're allowed to cash out early, this will give you incentives to take risky decisions and then cash out before the bad consequences are are played out. However, this is actually not the same as saying pay limits and risk-taking are closely tied. So whilst I agree with you that executive compensation is a big factor, this is the structure of incentives rather than the actual level of pay. Right. So if indeed what we see being the asymmetric risk-reward structure or the short-term nature of incentives being the driver of risk-taking, then actually changing the level of pay misses most of the action. So this may not actually get to the heart of the problem. So again, politically, this is something which is, which is very palatable, but economically, it's not clear to me this is tackling the main problem. Well, thank you very much. Thanks very much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.